people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, well, coming up this week, why size is important, at least when it comes to your pecker. Because birds living in warmer climates, it turns out, to have bigger beaks. Also, evidence that plants can make decisions, who would have thought they were clever enough. And also, how scientists have regrown a new lung almost from scratch. We'll be talking to the man who's made it happen. Hello, I'm Chris Smith. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. And joining me from our Naked Astronomy podcast is Andrew Ponson. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And also Helen Scales. Helen. Hello. Also, this week it's our science phone-in extravaganza. So stay tuned to find out how spiders spin webs across very wide spaces... What's the best way to keep the bottle of fizzy drink you've got nice and fizzy after you've opened it? And does the football really behave badly because the air is thinner in Johannesburg? The answer to all of those are on the way. Plus, this week, kitchen science is hitting the road. OK, so we're on the M11. How fast are we going, Dave? About 70 miles an hour. OK, and how's the car holding out? Just about OK. You can find out exactly how and why Derek and Dave were risking life and limb on the M11 on the motorway later on in the programme. Chris. Helen, thank you very much. So if you've got a question for us here on the show, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can send us a tweet. The handle is at Naked Scientists on Twitter. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Andrew Ponson. And we're kicking off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot in the world of science this week. Helen. Well, I've got a birdie story to start us off with this week, with a discovery that birds living in colder climates have evolved smaller beaks than their fair-weather cousins, and it's probably to keep them warmer. That's what a new study is showing, and it was led by Matt Simmons from the University of Melbourne in Australia, and it was published in the American Naturalist Journal. And what they did was they looked at over 200 species of birds from across the globe. That included African barbets, tinkerbirds, Australian parrots, Canadian game birds, penguins and terns. And they looked at how their beak sizes varied um, with the temperature regime of the native habitat that these birds are normally found in. Now, we already know from thermal imaging studies that birds like toucans and geese can lose an awful lot of their body heat through their beaks. Well, now Simmons and the team have some really robust evidence that birds living in colder environments, whether that's towards the poles or up a mountain tend to have smaller beaks. Now, it could be that birds in warmer climates have evolved the big beaks to shed heat, but the authors think there's actually a bit more likely that cold temperature is a constraint on the size of the bird's beaks. Now, a huge great big beak radiating heat would be a huge liability if you lived in a cold climate, no matter what the other advantages that might come with it, like communication or attracting those all-important mates. Well, This is the first in-depth study that backs up a 133-year-old theory called Allen's Rule, and that predicts that warm-blooded animals from colder parts of the world will evolve smaller appendages, and that includes ears, tails and limbs. Now, the team didn't find such a strong relationship between bird leg length and temperature, and it really strongly suggests that it's the beaks that are the most important source of heat loss, and consequently that they really need to regulate their body temperature by controlling the size of their beak, and that's 
been a really important factor that sort of regulating body temperature um, has really shaped the evolution of bird beaks. It's amazing that the biggest biological radiator you can think of, it, it turns out, is a bird beak, as you mentioned earlier, toucans. The beak is so huge that they can lose heat from their beak. There was a paper in Science that showed this last year at 400% of the rate at which they make heat. So they could literally chill themselves to the bone if they didn't very carefully control how much heat was lost from the beak. And they do that by pumping blood through the superficial tissues of the beak. And as the body temperature of the bird goes up, so more beak gets recruited. So it's amazing, isn't it, to think that the animals have this adaptation? Because everyone knows elephant ears are very good at losing heat, but they're not as good as a toucan's beak. An elephant can only lose 85% of the heat that it produces in any given moment through its massive ears. So amazing adaptation. Thank you, Helen. Well, from birds to plants, and there's a very interesting study been done this week by scientists in Canada. This is James Carhill, who's from the University of Alberta. And he wanted to know what would happen if you plant two plants in the same pot. What do their roots do? Because everyone knows that plants make roots and the roots grow out into the soil and they bring in water and nutrients for the plant to grow on. But how do they compete with each other? What's the decision that goes on in the plant about where to send its roots in the soil? So this paper published in Science this week describes a series of experiments using a plant called Abutilon theophrasti. Uh, you might know this as China jute or velvet leaf. It's quite a nice, pretty flower. What they started off with was just plants grown on their own in a pot. And after the plant had grown, if you chop the stem off and inject some dye down the stem, you can label up with a coloured dye the roots, and this enables you to see where the roots go, and therefore you can work out the distribution of roots in the soil. They do that, and they find that the roots go everywhere, all over the pot. No problem there. What happens if you introduce another plant, though? Let's have two plants side by side and do the same experiment. Well, with the soil being homogeneous between them, in other words, there's equal amounts of nutrients in all portions of the pot, the roots of each plant grow towards each other, but when they get close, they stop, and they will not cross each other, but they will go elsewhere. Then what happens if you say, well, let's put the nutrients only right between the two plants? So in other words, in order to get water and nutrients, they've got to get together. And if you do it that time, what you find out is that the roots of the two plants grow into the nutrients and they do cross and they will intermingle with each other. And this is extraordinary because it shows that plants can actually integrate multiple information sources. They've got one source of information saying the nutrients are over here and another source of information saying, ah, oh, but there's a competing plant here. You don't want to get too close to that because it will make you compete with it. But the plant says, well, I haven't got enough nutrients, so I'm going to have to ignore that signal and grow there anyway. No one knows what these signals are, but isn't that intriguing? It's wonderful and makes me think an awful lot more is going on when I take out my uh, plants from their pots to put them in a bigger one and uh, and they're all tangled up but obviously they're having a big fight um, in there over nutrients and, and space and, and that's very complex, very interesting. Absolutely, if there are limiting supplies of nutrients then they are going to be forced to compete with each other. Andrew, what have you got for us? Well, uh, there was an announcement this week from astronomers to remind us that the sky can tell us as much or perhaps sometimes even more, about tiny particles than experiments based down here on Earth can. Now, this was announced at a conference in London, uh, which I was actually at. And the announcement focuses on neutrinos, which are pretty mysterious particles. Performing direct experiments on neutrinos is immensely difficult because they can speed straight through solid matter without ever leaving a trace that they were actually there. But what are they? Well, they are just subatomic particles. They were predicted back in the 1930s by particle physicists looking at particular nuclear reactions and not actually directly detected experimentally until the 1950s. Now, what we actually want to measure is the mass of the neutrinos because our current model of particle physics just doesn't tell us what those masses should be. In fact, predicts they should be massless, but we now know they're definitely not. So we need to pin down what is this mass and, and why is it there? And it's been increasingly realised that astronomical scales are an excellent place to look because these neutrinos have effects on the early universe and uh, they leave telltale signs in the distribution of matter in the present-day cosmos. So this is work from University College London uh, by uh, Sean Thomas and uh, his PhD supervisor, Ofer Lahav. 
they have announced that they've used a survey known as Mega Z of the positions of 700,000 galaxies in combination with existing astronomical data to put a tight upper limit on the possible mass of neutrinos. And that limit says that the mass must be smaller than 0.3 of an electron volt. So that's a fraction of a billionth of a single atom. Pretty small, but why is this important? Well, it's pretty small, but it, it's actually quite significant to get this level of upper limit because it's getting close to a lower limit on the mass that's set by other uh, experiments and observations. So we're squeezing the result between a lower and an upper bound, and sooner or later we've got to get a measurement of the actual mass. Overall, it's really exciting that astronomical observations can tell us more about a tiny, elusive particle than direct experiments here on Earth. Indeed, it's extraordinary to think that you can, you can learn from the biggest things um, something about some of the smallest things. That's right, yeah. Helen. Right, well, I've got another story from the animal world. Well, from the, the, the natural world. And uh, my favourite place of all, of course, the oceans. And the, the fact that scientists have taken steps towards solving what's been a 30-year oceanographic puzzle. And that's because they've discovered that microscopic algae living in mid-ocean areas must be getting essential nutrients from as deep down as 250 metres beneath the waves. But exactly how they're doing it remains something of a tantalising mystery. The study was published in Nature this week led by Ken Johnson from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in the States and they've provided some answers to the important question of how algae manage to flourish in areas of clear blue ocean where there's virtually no nutrients at the surface. They went out and sent a robotic drifter called an apex float into the waters off Hawaii, not a bad place to be working, and for two years it automatically bobbed up and down in the water column between the surface and a 1,000 metres down, measuring oxygen and nitrogen levels as it went. Now they found that between January and October of each year, concentrations of oxygen in the upper 100 metres gradually increased, but at the same time concentrations of nitrate in the deeper waters between 100 and 250 metres decreased. Now this suggests that what's going on is that the algae in the shallow water where there's lots of sunlight for photosynthesis to go on for them to produce oxygen but that somehow they're grabbing nutrients from deeper darker waters. But how they do this is something that we don't yet know. Johnson and the team suggest that there could be dormant microalgae living in the deeper waters um, and that they're occasionally stirred up into shallower waters by swirling eddy currents. They could maybe reach around 70 metres um, and then from there they mop up some of the nutrients that are down there and perhaps carry on their way towards the sunlit shallows under their own steam because algae can actually swim. They've got little flagella and um, little hairs that they can use to swim with um, and they can control their own buoyancy. So by stirring them up in that way you sort of bring them up plus a dose of food for them and so they arrive in this warmer water with the food so they can then flourish because of sunlight there. Absolutely, that's the key thing. It's nutrients and sunlight together that they need to be able to flourish. And this is all very important because these mid-ocean algae are, are, are important part of the, the carbon cycle. They're fixing a fifth of the carbon dioxide uptake of all the plants and algae for the whole planet. So it's playing a really important role in global climate. So we really need to understand what's going on. Indeed, especially, as you say, with, with interest being focused as it is on the climate side of things, understanding how something like the ocean, which has such a huge role to play in soaking up CO2, actually works is pretty important, isn't it? Absolutely, completely. Helen, thanks. Well, also in the news this week, researchers at uh, Yale University in America have come one step closer to building a functional lung in the laboratory. The team stripped cells off the lung of a rat, which left behind a connective tissue scaffolding, which they then repopulated with new cells. And this newly formed lung successfully exchanged oxygen and carbon dioxide for a short time after it was transplanted into another recipient rat. And this offers hope that we might be able to build replacement lung tissue for people in the future. Well, joining us to tell us a bit more about how he made this happen is one of the researchers, Dr Thomas Peterson, who's a postdoctoral associate in biomedical engineering at Yale. Hello, Thomas. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Tell us, first, first of all, I gave a very brief summary and overview there. How did you actually do this work? Well, you gave a very excellent summary. Um, we start, as you said, with a normal lung of a rat and treat it with a chemical solution to remove all the cells. And this gives us this three-dimensional scaffold or skeleton of a lung. And that's a very important part because the 3D structure of a lung is quite complex and something that we couldn't easily make in the laboratory if we wanted to. So we can't, say, make an artificial material that is in the shape of a lung. Um, and this scaffold can then be 
seeded with cells, a variety of cell types we used, both blood vessel cells, airway cells. And then we cultured this growing tissue in the lab for about a week, after which we can take it out and study it in a variety of ways. And we can also transplant it into rats, as you mentioned. And once you've got the scaffolding, how do the cells that you transplant onto that scaffolding know where to go and what sorts of cells to turn into? That's a very good question. Um, So there are two things that we did to try and help the cells go to the right places. The first at a very high level is we put them into the right compartments. So in the lung, you pretty much have two areas. You have the airway compartment and the blood vessel compartment. And so at a very high level, we just put the blood vessel cells into the blood vessels and the airway cells into the airways. The second thing we did to try and help this was during this one week of growth in the lab, we provided stimuli to the lung. So the lung was being breathed, uh, similar to the way a patient is breathed on a ventilator. And we also pumped nutrients, a nutrient solution, through the blood vessels of the lung. So these two stimuli helped to encourage the cells to grow in more normal lung patterns. But certainly, we don't fully know why all of the cells seem to go to the right places. And that's something that we're interested in trying to look into further going forward. Because one of the interesting things about lungs is that it's not just a bunch of blood vessels and a bunch of airway cells. There are individual different types of cells in both structures, but but certainly in the airways, there are things like cells that make the surfactant, the chemical that makes the water lose its surface tension so the airways don't collapse, for example. Those cells appeared and populated the airways in the right numbers in your tests. Do you think there are signals coming off of that underlying scaffold that direct the cells to turn into certain specialised forms? Yes, absolutely. Our our most likely scenario is that there are cues left behind on this empty three-dimensional scaffold that are helping to direct the right cells to adhere to the right spots on the lung. Um, There are other possibilities that we're interested in looking into, but that's really the most likely scenario, that there's some cellular signals that are staying behind on the scaffold. And you were able to to take this regrown lung, which took, what, a week or so to regrow, and then put that into a recipient animal? That's correct. So we performed left lung transplants on uh, several animals. Um, This was only short-term transplants for up to two hours. They did work quite well. There was no large leaks of air or blood. Um, And the primary function we're looking at uh, evaluating is, as you said earlier, is gas exchange. So whether the the lungs can oxygenate the blood that's flowing through them and whether they can remove carbon dioxide out of the blood. And they performed very well in both of those aspects. Why did you only go for two hours? Was that all that you had uh, permission to do, let's say? Or was it that the lungs at some point failed beyond that point and there's more work to do? Right. Well, it's, an, it's a combination of both of those. We, we do have limitations on what we can do in the animals, and two hours was our objective. And the lungs were still doing fine. They were still breathing. There was still blood flowing through them after two hours. But certainly, we wouldn't right now expect that they would have functioned as well for, say, a day or, or even uh, maybe even several hours. Um, after two hours, in some of the lungs, we were able to see small blood clots forming in some areas. And certainly that would have gotten worse over time. And that's one of the things we need to work on in this going forward is ensuring that no blood clots form in the engineered lung. Now, one obvious direct application of this is to say, well, if we do lung transplants on humans, whilst this does save lives, the long-term prognosis is still quite poor because the immune system moves in and causes damage, infections move in and cause damage, and therefore it's not a perfect solution. If we could take a lung scaffold and populate it with a person's own cells so we didn't have to reduce the activity of the immune system, this would presumably be a very big short-term goal for work of this type. Right. Well, I would still call that a long-term goal. Um, We do obviously want to transition this work into human tissue. Um, And the way to do that would be to start with a human or a similarly sized lung scaffold and then obtain uh, cells from a given patient. And there have been advances lately involving stem cell work, involving adult-derived stem cells um, that we could possibly use to uh, repopulate this human lung scaffold. Um, And that would avoid uh, rejection in a transplant patient. I would estimate it would still take, say, 20 years before we can grow a fully functional human lung in the laboratory. 
Although I guess that uh, the ultimate goal, and the reason I said a shorter-term goal versus a longer-term one, is that you really want to be able to produce a complete lung de novo by using, say, microfabrication techniques or something to lay down a scaffold so you don't have to borrow someone else's. Uh, yes, well, there's a few ways in which you could get the scaffold to begin with. Um, the first option would be a human lung that is not suitable for transplant. And, and there are quite a few uh, available lungs that are just simply not good enough to be used for transplant. It's also possible to potentially use the lung of a primate or even a pig. Um, the molecules that make up this lung scaffold are highly conserved. They're highly similar across these species. And it would be highly unlikely that they would be recognized by the body as foreign, meaning they would not then be rejected. Which is very encouraging. We wish you luck with it, Thomas. Thank you for joining us to tell us all about the research. Um, we'll put the details of Thomas's paper, which is published actually in Science this week, on our website, alongside all of the other news stories we've covered. The details of that are at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. That was Thomas Peterson, who is a researcher from Yale. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Helen Scales and with Andrew Ponson. We're answering your science questions this week and also on the way we'll hear from Mira who's been finding out about the popularity of social gaming and how much it could be costing you to fly an England flag on your car. And if you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Helen, thanks. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What can we do for you? I have a question about um, cold sores. First of all, what is a cold sore and how come some people are more susceptible to them than others? Oh, they're painful. Have you got them? I've only ever had one once in my life. <laughs> Knowingly. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do a straw poll here. Helen, Andrew, uh, any cold sore action? Uh, I had one about two years ago. It was, it was awful. I don't think I ever have, actually. Not that I know of, no. They're a healthy bunch here, Caroline. Um, the reason we get cold sores is because of a virus. It's a virus called herpes simplex virus, HSV. Um, it's one of the commonest human viruses. In fact, about 80% of adults have antibodies to this virus, indicating they've been infected. And James Bond said diamonds are forever. Well, herpes is for life. Once you've got it, you have it for the rest of your life. And the reason for that is that the virus exists as, a, as what's called a latent state inside the cells of your nervous system. Herpes simplex goes into sensory nerves, the ones that uh, supply the skin, for example, and after you're infected, the virus goes along inside the nerve fibre to the cell body, which is a structure where the nucleus of the cell is, and inside that nucleus is the DNA of the cell, and the virus adds its DNA alongside your own cell's DNA, so it just sits there inside the cell. And uh, periodically, and in response to various stimuli, the virus can come back out again. So if you get sunburned, if you get trauma to the skin, if you get run down or ill for some other reason, this can all prompt the virus or provoke the virus to switch on the DNA. And in that DNA are the genes that tell it how to make new virus particles. And they come back out down the nerve cell to the patch of skin that that nerve supplies. And the virus particles bud off from the end of the nerve and infect the overlying skin, and you get a cold sore, and that's got lots of virus particles, millions of virus particles in that are infectious, and you can then, if you get close to someone else, as in kissing close, you can pass the virus on. Oh, right, OK. So I guess you want to know why do some people get it, some don't? Yes. Well, we don't know, because if you do tests, although you can find 80% of people who've got it, only about 15% of people have regular so-called reactivations. In other words, the virus only comes back periodically in about 15% of the people who've got it. And in an even bigger proportion, it can come back asymptomatically. You can shed the virus without realising it in saliva. So it looks like there's either something about the virus that makes it come back in some people. There might be some genes that are slightly different in the virus. Or, more likely, is that there's something different about the people that reactivate the virus much more frequently. Right. And maybe they carry a gene or something that yeah. makes them more, more likely to reactivate it. But the bottom line is that it's normally getting run down or sunburnt or trauma to the skin that discloses the virus. Interesting. That solve your problem? Yes, it does. It solves All right. my problem. Good to have you with us, Caroline. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye right now. Bye-bye. Bye. Helen, I have one for you here. This is from uh, Teas Road, who's listening to us from Bristol University, and says, can we taste without smelling food? I'm wondering whether we can taste without smelling food because yesterday I had a blocked nose and onion tasted like potato. 
Well, that's a really good question, and it's um, and you've you've got hit on the right point that it's not just about taste in our mouths it's also our nose that that leads to a sensation of flavor and taste uh, and we have two things going on we have our tongues which have taste buds on them in little uh, ridges and valleys called papillae and these are responsible for picking up the four and some people think five main tastes which are bitter sweet sour salty and savory or umami there's not much nuance to those different flavors but we do pick those up on our tongue and the rest of the taste that we have comes from smelling the food from the odor molecules that come off it they waft up our nose and essentially um, fire nerve signals from somewhere called the olfactory mucosa inside your nose, um, which has receptor neurons, and they will will tell your brain when you've picked up certain different chemicals. But um, interestingly, it's not all the smell that comes up your nose that is responsible for the taste. So if you if you didn't have a cold, the reason you can't smell when you have a cold is because your olfactory mucosa gets covered in, in goo and uh, and those receptor neurons really don't get anywhere near to those molecules of odour that they're interested in. But if you hold your nose, you might have noticed you can still taste quite well when you're eating. And that's because some of those molecules also go from your mouth sort of through the internal passages and still find their way to ol- olfactory mucosa. So it's no good just holding your nose if you don't like the taste of your medicine. <laughs> I used to um, do that. <laughs> medicine does, for Brussels sprouts, actually. <laughs> it, it does help. And in fact, interestingly, in a, in a 2005 study in the journal Neuron, Dana Small from Yale University led a study where they put tubes up volunteers' noses. I hope they did pay these people well because this does sound like a fairly nasty study. <laughs> One of the tubes um, went just to the nose. The other one went back into the mouth. And they wafted smells up these different tubes and put them people inside an MRI scanner and showed that different parts of the brain were activated depending on if the smell went to the olfactory mucosa directly or whether it went into the mouth and then sort of wafted back up there. It makes sense that essentially if you're smelling something from a distance, it's more like, oh goody, there's some chocolate on the way, perhaps I should go and find myself some of that. Whereas if you're eating the chocolate, you're actually doing other things like preparing your body for a nice hit of fat and sugar that's going to come along with the chocolate that you're eating. So it seems something quite interesting is going on in your nose and your mouth to, to lead to the sensation of taste. Terrific. I still, I still say that holding your nose works well for Brussels sprouts. It did for me. Andrew, there's an interesting question here, which is from Francois Hugo, who says, how is north determined for planets that don't have a magnetic field? And then he goes on to ask about the Earth's magnetic field fl- flipping. We can talk about that in a second. OK, well, uh, north would generally be determined, I would say, in terms of the rotation of a planet. So when we talk about north here on Earth, what we really mean is that you can look at the way that, that the Earth is rotation. There are, there are two fixed points. There are two points on the Earth which never actually move at all. And uh, that's what defines where the poles are on Earth. Now, which one's north and which one's south is going to be determined by, say, you, you look uh, from, from the top and you see it going round clockwise, uh, then that tells you which one you would call north and uh, which one you would call south. So that's going to apply to any planet, regardless of of whether there's a magnetic field. Of course, here on Earth, we do have a magnetic field. It's actually not perfectly aligned with the rotation of the planet. And as I think you were hinting, sometimes it it even flips around. So the naming of the north and south poles in terms of magnetic fields, of course, does come about historically because it was roughly lined up with the way that the Earth rotated. but uh, it, it's not a, a direct physical link, if you like. And uh, this is slightly more speculative on his part. Would there be serious cartographical stress if the Earth's polarity flips around? I guess not really, would it? Well, not not for cartographers exactly, but it would have really serious consequences. Uh, I, I remember, I mean, I, I'm by no, by no means an expert, but from my geology courses way back when, that uh, in fact you can find uh, certainly historical records of, of uh, these flips. And they correlate very well with mass extinctions. And one of the reasons people think this might be is that the Earth's magnetic fields protects us from an awful lot of nasty particles streaming through space. And at the point at which it reverses, it probably shrinks down to more or less nothing. Uh, and then all these particles can bombard uh, the, the organisms living on the Earth. And, and, this is and solar radiation, it's, effectively. It's, solar wind, it's, isn't it's, it? It's the solar wind and uh, other cosmic rays, in fact, from, from other sources, and clearly causes major problems for Earth. So, so we really don't want that to happen. And we don't know how much warning we'd get either if it was about to happen. Historically, I mean, looking at the records written geologically in rocks, it's every 100,000 years or so, but it hasn't happened for 800,000 years, leading people to suggest that we're overdue. And there is an anomaly over the Southern Ocean or the Southern Atlantic, isn't there? And a satellite, ironically, was put up to study the Earth's magnetic field and it ended up floating across this anomaly and got bombarded and and it actually got messed up by by the very solar radiation (laughs) um, that we're worried about basting the Earth. So, yeah, point well made. Thank you, Andrew. 
Right, this is The Naked Scientist. It's Chris, Helen and Andrew. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientist. If you want to send an email, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. In a minute, we'll be finding out how you can keep your fizz in a bottle of fizzy drink. But first, it's time to join Mira Senthalingam because... As uh, well as helping to keep you in touch with your friends and family, social networking sites like Facebook are increasingly offering alternative forms of entertainment in the form of highly addictive online games, I can testify to that, that you can play with your friends. This week I've come along to the offices of Playfish in London who develop social games to see what all the fuss is about and what goes into creating them. With me is Steve Shipton, Technical Director of Studios here at Playfish. So a social game is a game that you play with friends. Friends will be necessary to complete certain aspects of the game. You'll be sharing features of the game with your friends, just generally moving away from playing alone. What makes these types of games so popular online? Part of that is that you can play the game in very short bursts. And what you do, you share with your friends, so you know, you're kind of showing off a little bit when you're playing the game. And then your friend sees that, and then they want to get in on the action, and so on and so on. There's kind of a, a viral cascade of people playing. How popular would you say this field of gaming is? So how, how many players are there worldwide? There's approximately 100 million people playing per day, playing social games. Purely through sites such as Facebook? Yeah, that's, in fact, that's just on Facebook. And um, the Playfish games account for about 10 million of that. So that's a lot of people. What do we know about the average player? That's quite interesting. It's very different to traditional gaming in that the split is pretty much 50-50 male-female. The actual age range can go anywhere between uh, 15 to 55. But there is a, a core group in the 18 to 34 range. Here at Playfish, you've created a variety of games, varying from Pet Society, where you create and own a pet, to Restaurant City, where you manage a, a restaurant and have players or friends come and eat at the restaurant or work at the restaurant. What goes into developing these types of games? Each game must factor in some social aspect. Another thing that we use is to have items in the game that you can only collect with the help of your friends. Also, we need to allow people to play these games in very short bursts. A lot of times people are playing at work or sort of, you know, just relaxing at home, and they don't want to be spending half an hour in a solid session with that game. It's difficult for us to try and get the same sort of rewarding gameplay into that sort of that one-minute play, which is typical. We also need to think about how can we monetize the game. All of our games are free to play, but... We need to have a coin economy in there and a sort of cash economy so that if players want to, then they have the option of sort of spending some money and sort of, you know, keeping the game running. A key point is that these games are free to play, so that's always an incentive for people to come on and start playing. But how do you keep them interested and keep your players there? So one of the big challenges for us is to keep the game fresh for existing players. They're very important to us and we want to sort of keep them playing for as long as possible so that they get the maximum value out of the game. And we have this whole philosophy where we run games as a service. So one of the differences with traditional gaming is that whereas they will spend years and years making a game, our games are updated every single week. So each week there is new content, new features. A lot of these types of games do seem to be purely for entertainment purposes, but could they be taken advantage of in terms of public awareness or to create some educational initiatives? So we've actually got a game out called Geo Challenge in which you must identify countries' flags, the shapes of countries, locate capitals, things like that. So that one is educational, but then due to the active gameplay nature of that, where it does demand your attention for two to three minutes to do the quiz, it doesn't seem to be as popular as the management-based games. Within games themselves, we always try to have a, a slight educational theme, so... In Pet Society, you can buy various paintings that look a bit like the famous works. And um, in our new game, My Empire, you can build the seven wonders of the world. Clearly, this field of gaming, it's a big player in the world of gaming as a whole. Because recently, just a few months ago, Electronic Arts, that's EA Games, bought Playfish. This is really great for the platform. Big games company like EA finally taking notice and investing a significant amount of money. It means that we can now put uh, game licenses on, on Facebook. And recently we launched FIFA Superstars, where you can manage a team to train them up to buy new players and to sort of play against your friends and try to be number one amongst your friends. And I imagine with the World Cup, this is excellent timing. You'll be able to take part in a unique World Cup challenge within the game. And going forward, lots of other football contests, anything to do with FIFA basically will be in the game. So as you can see, the, the future for social gaming is going to be more integration with social platforms and bringing bigger brands to, to these social platforms that people recognise. 
So anyone who wants to can now manage their own football teams to see if they can do better than Fabio Capello and perhaps England will get their hands on that cup when online anyway. That was Steve Shipton, Technical Director of Studios at Playfish. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Andrew Ponson. It's our science phone-in. On the way, we'll be finding out how much flying those England flags in vain on your car was costing you. I suspect there won't be many of them now. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com or send us a tweet. It's at Naked Scientist. Meanwhile, here's Steve who's with us. Hello, Steve. Hello. My question is, what is the best way to keep the fizz in a half-empty bottle of pop? I squeeze all the air out, put the lid on and throw it in the fridge, but is there a better way? Ah, so, so what you're saying is, is it good to squeeze the bottle flat or yes. um, should you just leave it and put the cap on? Yeah, should you leave it with the air in or without? OK. What do we think here in the studio, Helen? My guess is that you should not squeeze the air out because at least that room... By having the air, the, the carbon dioxide that's already been released when you first close it, that somehow must help stop more carbon dioxide coming out too. So otherwise you've got sort of got a vacuum to fill and the carbon dioxide will more quickly come out of your your drink if there's nothing for it to push against. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Helen, actually. Uh, so, uh, Sounds surprised. <laughs> it's just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can't have biologists uh, answering physics questions. No, I absolutely agree. Um, basically, the, there's loads of carbon dioxide dissolved in, in these drinks, and it fizzing is happening when the carbon dioxide is coming out of solution and turning back into a gas. And the rate at which that happens is, is determined by the pressure against which it's pushing. So you want as high pressure as possible in, in the uh, vicinity of the liquid to stop the uh, gas coming out of solution. Because you can buy those gadgets that will pump up the, the bottle again and put some pressure above the liquid. Some people have said this won't work because it's putting air, not carbon dioxide. But the point is that air is 80% nitrogen. Nitrogen is really poorly soluble in water. So for the carbon dioxide to come out and go into the air above the bottle it's got to increase the pressure because hardly any nitrogen is going to dissolve. So if you pump up the pressure even higher above the liquid, it'll make it even harder for the CO2 to come out. So I reckon that's a reasonable strategy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you just want the pressure to be as much as possible to stop it coming out of solution. So there you go, Steve. Your, your, your flattening strategy is flattening in more ways than one. So I've been getting it wrong for all these years. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, what you could do is to get the bottle and put your mouth over the thing and then uh, blow really hard into it and then quickly try and put the cap on. No, I'm just joking. Um, don't and flatten the bottle. Don't squeeze the bottle flat. That will stop everyone else drinking my drink. It, it would have the added benefit. No, the one thing I will say, the biggest determinant of keeping the drink fizzy actually is putting it in the fridge because as the temperature of the liquid rises, its ability to dissolve a gas like CO2 or oxygen, for that matter, in, it, it drops. And therefore, the colder the liquid is, the easier it's going to hang on to its CO2. So whacking it back in the fridge is, is absolutely spot on. That's what you've got to do. OK, thanks very all right, much. That's all right. Thank you for joining us on the show. Helen. I've got a question here from Jazzy V, who wants to know, how do spiders spin webs across open spaces? And this is particularly relevant because I think there's been a hatching of spiders in Cambridge very recently because I am getting... If I sit in my garden for more than about five minutes, um, I, I get turned into a spider web. So they're doing it at the moment. You're turned into a spider web. <laughs> OK, I get made, one gets made around me. Um, so they're definitely out there doing this. Um, and how are they doing it? Hopefully it's a money spider. Um, yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Because you think... I see this web, it goes from one tree over there to one tree over there. Did the spider go all the way down, walk along the ground, up the other tree, and then string this piece of thread across the two? The answer is no, of course it didn't. It's too small to know these places exist relative to each other. The way the spiders do this, actually, is that they sit on the end of one twig or something, and they stream out this very long but very light thread of silk, which gets picked up on air currents, and it floats away from the spider, and the spider is continuously testing the tension in the thread, and when it feels it goes taut, it realises it must have snagged on something. So it will then fix that end and go across, counting steps, because the spiders measure distance by counting their steps, and it therefore knows how far away it is. It then counts back halfway, knows that it's halfway back across, and then drops a perpendicular, so it goes down to the ground. That's the middle of its web, and it's got a sort of T-shape, and fixes the bottom thread, and then after that it's got the three points it needs to start making the web. So that's how it does it. 
ingenious stuff. It is ingenious, and I feel terrible when I have to take it down, when I have to move, because <laughs> it's gone so much effort, but I'm sorry. I have well, to... ants do the same thing. They count steps to work out how to find their way home, of course. Fantastic. Um, talking of, of insects and that kind of thing, uh, in a second we'll explore this question on um, moths and why they go in circles around light. But first, John in Peterborough, Helen, asks you, what is the point of eyebrows? What's the point of eyebrows? To look lovely so we can paint them in and... and be very beautiful. No, um, the th- the main theories are that eyebrows are rather muckily um, for to stop sweat from dropping into our eyes. Um, and in fact, that's almost the prominent brow that that we have um, and that our ancestors had helped to stop us having to mop our brows quite so much. And if you watch the hot tennis players at the moment in Wimbledon, um, you might see that uh, having eyebrows does help. And I, th- I think people who say that if you lose an eyebrow or, or if you shave it off, or your friends do perhaps, um, uh, then uh, you will get more sweat. I, th- I think there is, it does seem to actually actually work for you, especially if you've got big bushy eyebrows. That really does help to mop things up. So, uh, so I didn't know you'd so, been on my stag do. So don't, don't, don't pluck all your eyebrows out in case, unless you want to be uh, impairing your vision in on hot days. Miss Godfrey said the spiders have eyelids. Well, they don't actually because spiders have uh, compound eyes. So they have lots and lots of individual lenses that then filter down through this lens material onto a photoreceptor, a light-sensitive plate underneath. So they don't have a call for having any kind of eyelid-type structure. Their eyes are open all the time, so they'll keep an eye on you because they've got plenty of them. Uh, Thomas is on the telephone. Hello, Thomas. Good evening. Thomas here. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What do you want to talk about? Okay, I've got a question, or rather one and a half questions, about the impact of gravity on mass. Now, I know that the Earth isn't totally spheric. I think it's rather like potato-shaped. And the fact, this fact, among others, should probably have a tiny little impact on measured gravity at sea level around the globe. Now, if mass stays the same, but gravity differs when moving from the mid-latitudes towards the equator or polar region, how will you ensure, for example, when you take a Boeing 747 with a max takeoff weight around 440 tons, that it will work at all latitudes? And uh, maybe how many percent can the measured weight differ compared when you take the same mass from the pole to the equator. Okay, uh, well, the strength of gravity on Earth is measured in terms of how fast it accelerates things, and uh, roughly speaking, it's about 10 metres per second every second. That's how fast it accelerates things. And you're absolutely right that uh, it differs slightly uh, depending on whether you're at the equator or at the poles. And there are, t- there are basically two effects that, that are contributing to that. The first is actually the, the rotation of the Earth itself. We were saying earlier on, actually, that if you're standing on the poles, that point is fixed, so you're not moving at all, whereas if you're at the equator, you're moving very fast uh, around in a, in a circle. And that reduces the the effect of gravity that you feel by uh, what's actually 3.4 centimetres per second per second. So that's about a 0.3% effect. It reduces the uh, weight by 0.3%. And uh, you also said correctly that the Earth actually bulges around the equator. And uh, I think if, if I'm getting this right, it, it, that's going to make it up into about a 0.5% effect. So it's going to have a 0.5% effect on the, uh, the weight that's measured of your Boeing 7 which is not really a huge amount uh, in terms of the uncertainties involved in aviation. Because they've also taken into account extra things in terms of safety factors for those kind of takeoffs anyway. So, so it's already been taken account of. Absolutely right, yeah. Andrew, thank you very much. Well, still to come, why one side of your brain controls the opposite side of your body. But first, here at The Naked Scientists, we're certainly old enough to remember back to the last Football World Cup, and I suspect many of you listeners are as well. So, by popular demand, we've dipped into the archives this week for a football-themed kitchen science from four years ago, when Dave Ansell and Derek Thorne set out to discover whether showing your support for England cost you more than just your nerves. Right now, I'm actually in a car park on the outskirts of Cambridge with Dave and also Dave's car, and we're going to be testing something. What is it we're going to be testing, Dave? Well, everyone keeps asking, how much does it cost to put an England flag on your car? How much it costs you in petrol just driving around? OK, and exactly, you know, why would it cost you extra petrol, do you think? Well, adding a great big lump sticking outside your car is going to increase the drag of your car. If you put a big floppy strap flag on the side, it's going to slow the car down. So the question is, how much drag is it going to produce? OK, so what's the apparatus we've got set up here, then? 
Well, it's a very high-tech piece of apparatus. Basically, it involves a stick, a flag, which I got for 10p from Co-op, and a spring balance. So, yeah, what Dave's got, basically, is a long wooden pole. Uh, it's quite thin, and it's about, what, a metre long, isn't it? And also, tied to the end of that is one of these little England flags. So, basically, it's kind of like an England flag with a big flagpole on it. And, uh, and there's also kind of a pivot. What, what's the pivot for? Well, the idea is that the England flag's going to get pulled back. Um, someone holds on to the screwdriver, which is acting a pivot, and it will pull the f- um, pole forwards. Now, if we just hold on to the string balance attached to the pole, we'll be able to measure how hard it's being pulled forwards. So basically, the, the pivot is kind of very, very close to the top of the flag, where the flag is actually going to hang out of the car. And so if you can imagine the wind rushing past the flag in one direction, it's going to pull the rest of the flagpole round uh, with that pivot kind of acting as a fulcrum. And then on the other side of that pivot, we've actually got a force meter. Just describe that meter quickly. It's just one of the little spring balances which you probably used at school to weigh things with. Yeah, OK, so it's like it's got a little hook on the end and it's got a spring in it and also some kind of markings along the side so you can see how many units of force you're actually using up. And, of course, the unit of force is... The Newton, Derek. OK, so we're going to be finding out how, much, how many Newtons and, therefore, hopefully, how much petrol these England flags hanging out of the windows have been costing us. So, all right then, we're ready. What's the plan? Well, basically, we're going to get into my car, I'm going to give you the piece of kit, because I've got to drive, and we're going to measure how much force it takes to pull a flag through the air. Fantastic. All right, let's do it. All right, then, so we're on the A505 near Duxford, and uh, Dave's driving his car, I'm sat in the back, and our esteemed producer has actually come along to help hold this contraption together as well. Dave, how fast are we going? We're about 40 miles an hour now, Derek. Now, I'm, I'm looking at the force meter. We've fixed it on the other side of this pole, so the flag, you can hear it. It's uh, fluttering out of the window there, and I can read a force of 1.75 newtons. OK, and that's at 40 miles an hour. But I think what we want to do now is try and get it a bit quicker. So what's the plan, Dave? Um, we're going to turn around and head on to the M11 and see how fast we can go. OK, and see how fast this banger goes. Fantastic. OK, here we go for the M11. OK, so we're on the M11. How fast are we going, Dave? About 70 miles an hour. Okay, and how's the car holding out? Just about okay. All right, so we're going about 70 miles an hour. We are legal here on the Naked Scientists, and the flag is out there. It's bending on the plastic pole, bending like hell. And uh, we've actually got the force meter. It's much further down the pole because the uh, the force is so great. We've actually got to make it quite hard to put a measurement on this force meter. So the the length on the inside of the car, on, on the other side of the pole, is three times what it is on the flag side. Anyway, looking at the uh, the force meter... We've got, well, it's shaking all over the place, but I think it's, it's kind of averaging out at something like 2.25 newtons. And so because we've actually got the, uh, the length of the flagpole on the inside of the car is three times the, uh, the, the length on the outside, that means we've got to multiply that force by three to actually get the real force which is being exerted on the flag on the outside of the car. So I think quick calculation in my head, so that's about 6.75 newtons. So there you go, doing uh, cruising down the motorway at 70 miles an hour, that's what you get. We're going to go and find somewhere to park and work out what all of this means. In the meantime, let's get the flag in before the cops think something weird is going on. So we're back in a car park just on the outskirts of Cambridge. We're near Trumpington, and uh, we've just been on our drive. We've measured the force that was on the flag at 40 miles an hour and then, then at 70 miles an hour. And Dave here has the back of an envelope, no less. He's come prepared, this man, and so he's been working out exactly how much energy and therefore how much fuel and so on it's been costing us. So, Dave, what have you worked out? Power is basically force times speed. So at 40 miles an hour, you're doing 18 metres per second, and there was about 3.5 newtons on the flag. So that comes out about 63 watts, so about the same as running an extra light bulb for no particularly good reason. Now, a car's about only 30% efficient, so you've got to multiply that by about 3 to give you the amount of power in petrol you're using, so about 135 watts in petrol. So that comes out about 0.7 megajoules per hour. OK, so this is the amount of extra energy that your car is using for every hour that it's got the flag at 40 miles an hour. OK. And petrol's got about 32 megajoules per litre in it, and petrol's about a pound a litre, so it comes out about 2p per hour that you should spend at 40 miles an hour. So every car per hour that it has a flag running outside of it at 40 miles an hour spends an extra 2p an hour, which may not sound like much, but there's more to this story. OK, at 70 miles an hour then, what have we got there with the same sort of equation? Well, at 70 miles an hour, you're doing 31 metres per second, and it was 6.75 newtons rather than 3, um, and that comes out about 8p an hour. And, of course, we've got to remember that a lot of people, well, anyone who had these flags, generally had two on their car. So, actually... So it's actually about 16p an hour per car, or about 1.2 kilowatts of energy. Now then, what, of course, we want to know is, of course, that, that's the cost per car, and people may think, oh, well, that's not very much. But 
in terms of the whole nation, you know, the, obviously the England football team, they cost the whole nation loads and loads of stuff. Did they, how much did they cost them in energy as well and, and in cost? Well, um, people drive about 6,000 miles a year on average. So for a month with people wearing the flag, so maybe 500 miles they drove. And that's about 10 hours of driving at 70 miles an hour, roughly. So about £1.60 per car. Say there's 20 million cars in the country, maybe a tenth of them had flags on. So that's 2 million cars, so about £3.2 million. That, can you believe it? There you go. We've, done, we've made some estimates there. Um, but basically that all comes down to £3.2 million in fuel being wasted by simply having these flags on there. So there we go. Dave, what do we reckon about having flags on your car? Possibly, OK, if you're going slowly, but doing 70 miles an hour, pretty wasteful. Thanks, guys. That was Dave Ansel and Derek Thorne with a fast-paced kitchen science for us. And since we recorded that, um, petrol prices have obviously gone up by about 20%, so that would make it more like £3.8 million wasted. So uh, maybe that's enough to pay Wayne Rooney for another football season if we wanted to. And perhaps we should just stick to bumper stickers and shirts next time. Well, if you want to find out more about our World Cup experiment or check out any of the other kitchen science experiments that you can try out at home, check out thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science and if you've noticed dave's little mistake on the 40 mile an hour calculation the correct maths is also up on the site laying the facts bare i say the naked scientists This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Andrew Ponson. We're answering your science questions and we heard from Rick Britton on our forum who said, in case you didn't know, it's the Soccer World Cup in South Africa at the moment. I prefer the word football, actually. And the tournament's being held in high altitude in some cases. So a couple of workmates told me that thin air could be affecting the movement of the ball through the air. But I'm sceptical. So what's the science? What do we think in, in this studio? What do you guys think? I can't actually imagine that the air is that less dense how high are we talking in Johannesburg? Well, it's actually about 4,000 feet. Again, I, don't, I can't see that that's going to... I know it does affect things like boiling water, but, but a football, I don't know. Well, I have to say, I think the, the footballs are designed to really minimise the effects of drag, and that presumably also means minimising the uh, difference between drag in different atmospheres. But having said that, clearly the fact that we lost must have been down to <laughs> some kind of uh, uh, major problem with the football, if not the referee. Well, actually, th there is quite a bit of science behind this. And, in fact, your mates, Rick, are probably right, it turns out. Because if you look at how footballs behave when they spin through the air as they fly, when they fly at slow speeds, what they are doing is parting the airstream and the air forms a nice even layer on either side of the football. It forms what's called laminar flow around the football. And because the air is sticking to the surface of the ball, it's applying a drag to it. But if you speed the ball up even more, so you go past a threshold point at which the air flowing past the ball is no longer in this laminar configuration, it becomes so-called turbulent, suddenly people have found, the drag on the football plummets. It becomes much, much lower. Even though you've increased the speed and, and increased the speed only a small amount, you've suddenly got a very, very low level of drag and it then begins to increase again gently. So when footballers are doing these incredible sort of banana shots and things, what they're doing is cannoning the ball away at about 30 metres a second, 70 miles an hour. And at that speed, the air is travelling in a turbulent way past the ball. So the amount of drag is actually quite low. But as the ball slows down, it then goes into the high drag regime, as it's known. In other words, the speed becomes such that instead of the air being turbulent around the ball, it begins to stick to the surface of the ball again, and that increases the drag very markedly, and this abruptly decelerates the ball. And it can also make it change direction, which is why the ball can slew into the goal in this bizarre way that we sometimes see. So speed is of the essence, and therefore the amount of air that's sticking to the ball is important. So if you look at what's going on in Joburg, that stadium is at about 4,000 feet. There's an index that people use on aeroplanes, which is called the indicated airspeed. This is a, a record of how fast the air is apparently going past the aeroplane, and it, we know by a rule of thumb that it's about 2% wrong for every 1,000 feet in height you go up. So in other words, at 4,000 feet, it will be four times 2%, which is an 8% error. In other words, the ball will be feeling drag as though it were going about 8% more slowly than it really is. So when your footy player is booting the ball, having trained at sea level, knowing 
how the ball performs in air of the density you're going to get at sea level, actually the speeds they're booting it at to make these effects happen are going to be all wrong because the ball is actually travelling and experiencing drag about 8% lower than it ought to at sea level. And therefore, this will, if you're a highly seasoned, highly practised footballer, unless you have an opportunity to realise this is what's happening, there could be an error in the way that you're going to boot the ball. It's amazing to think how much there is going on in physics in football, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, Wayne Rooney is is well known for his love of physics. Uh, But not for his knowledge of it, nor his ability to score goals this year, fortunately. Oh, well, never mind. Better luck next time. Better luck in 2014, isn't it? Uh, Yes, that is correct. Four years' time. See you there. We'll probably end up playing Germany again, anyway. (laughs) Um, Very quickly, Andrew, we've got a question for you, which is from David Worley. David Worley94 on Twitter. He says, if you jumped down a hole that went through the centre of the planet, would you fall out the other end or stay in the middle? You would absolutely fall out the other end. So you'd accelerate all the way until you got to the centre and then you'd decelerate all the way until you got to the other end and then you would come to a graceful stop just as you got to the uh, hole in Australia if you jumped in in the UK and that would be that. Um, and you'd then oscillate, presumably. Well, yeah, if you, di- if you didn't actually manage to stop yourself when you got to the other end and <laughs> hopefully you'd be prepared and you would, uh, you would oscillate backwards and forwards forever. And some people say with the same... Uh, rate as if you had a satellite doing an orbit around the Earth? Well, it depends slightly on exactly what orbit you put it into. But if I remember correctly, it's about 42 minutes, the uh, the period of oscillation. Helen, Aranima has sent us an email and says, why can't birds see the colour blue? As far as I was concerned, they could. Well, yes, all you have to really do is look at a peacock's tail to see just how important the colour blue is for birds. Um, And in fact, birds have really extraordinary vision because they have four cones, as well as the the three that we have, us us mammals and humans have. They can also see in UV and near UV light. The reason they do this is for all sorts of things. We think it it plays a really important role in sexual signals. If you cut out the UV part of of feathers, it, it really kind of interferes with how birds can communicate with each other. And it's also quite important for them in their ability to find prey and to forage and find other food. So UV light um, is very important. And they have great colour vision too. So birds birds are, are really quite championing the world of, of colour vision, actually, um, and can see much more than we can. Terrific. So there you go. It wasn't true at all. Thank you, Helen. Um, this is a really good one for you, Andrew. Mind-boggling to think of what it would look like. Tony says... Could a large enough fan propel a space shuttle? He says, my name's Tony. I'm in Pennsylvania, US. The father of one of my friends proposed the idea of putting a giant fan on the back of a space shuttle as a sufficient way to generate thrust. My friend believes it would do nothing as space is completely empty. But based on my rudimentary knowledge of physics, I think the shuttle would accelerate slowly due to the conservation of angular momentum. So is it feasible or even possible to propel a spacecraft with a giant fan? How would the slanted blades of the giant fan affect the system? And what about the size of the fan and fuel considerations to power it? OK, let's take this uh, one, one bit at a time. Uh, first of all, if space really were completely empty, then a fan would be useless to try and propel you through it. Um, although the conservation of angular momentum is important here, what, what it would actually mean is that if you weren't very careful about how you constructed this, you would switch your fan on and you would find that the spacecraft started rotating very fast. It could be <laughs> uncomfortable for the people inside. <laughs> very fast in the opposite direction. But actually, space isn't completely empty. So if you could get over this conservation of angular momentum problem, perhaps by having two fans which were counter-rotating, then you could use the, uh, well, if you're near the sun, something like five to ten protons in every centimetre cubed of space. Or if you're a bit further away from the sun, somewhere else in the galaxy, something like half a proton on average every uh, centimetre cubed. If you've got a really big fan, you could, in principle, use those protons uh, to, to, to thrust against. But I've been uh, just scribbling away doing a really rough calculation here. Now I've made some pretty generous assumptions and uh, I I wouldn't swear by this if NASA were asking me but this is what I reckon. If you could take uh, a really well designed spacecraft, say it was 10 tonnes that's that's fairly light and it had a 100 metre radius fan and blades that were 1 metre deep, then I reckon you would get sufficient acceleration to get from 0 to 6 60 miles per hour in the age of the universe. <laughs> so, 
It's a pretty efficient system, then. <laughs> well, I think I think we should certainly be funding look, looking into this uh, to to see what the possibilities are. Yeah, and this is assuming that you had overcome, although you presumably wouldn't have overcome with one fan, the spacecraft spinning around the opposite <laughs> way for the hectic ride for the people aboard. No, I think you'd need you'd need counter rotating blades, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's certainly an interesting question and an even more interesting answer. Thank you, Tony. Okay, Helen, uh, Anna Olson says, could a human being survive being swallowed by a whale or big fish a bit like Jonah? I've been thinking about the Old Testament story of Jonah who was swallowed by a big fish or a whale, according to Matthew's Gospel. Um, Are there any modern-day accounts of humans or animals surviving something like this? Um, There are plenty of accounts. They're all on the internet, and I should think they are all untrue um, because there are all sorts of reasons why I don't think it's likely that anyone's really going to survive, at least not for very long, inside any of these animals. We could look at it, if you like. Um, Well, which of the whales could physically swallow us? That's the first question. Can we actually get into their gullet and down their esophagus? If if you're talking about baleen whales with baleen plates that uh, filter tiny plankton and creatures from the sea, like a blue whale, the answer is no, because their esophaguses are very tiny, thin things a couple of inches across. And if a, even a blue whale only reaches about 10 inches if you stretched it. So I don't think that's going to be enough for us to get through. So maybe a child, but let's not try that. Um, so that really leaves the, the, the toothed whales, the other part of the whale group, things like killer whales and sperm whales. Yes, they can swallow large prey. They can swallow large seals whole, sperm whales. We know sperm whales can swallow giant squid whole. So chances are they could swallow a human whole. Um, if you can survive the being swallowed part of it and get past all those teeth, you then will find yourself in a complex system of digestion. They have up to four stomach chambers, like a cow. Find your way through those if you can, while you're also going to dodge all those nasty digestions digestive enzymes that are going to start corroding your skin. Well, not least the lack of oxygen, surely. Absolutely. That was my final point, was there really isn't any air in there. If there is any air inside a whale, um, it's probably methane, and that's not going to help you out very much. We do know that whales can be flatulent, um, so there is some gas. They do have gassy pockets, um, but it's not (laughs) air, not good to breathe. Certainly no air inside a fish, so I think that's really what's going to get you in the end. So I'm afraid no. But there are lovely stories. I like Rudyard Kipling's How the whale got his throat, which tells of uh, a shipwrecked mariner who was swallowed by a whale, and he caused such a fuss um, that the beast actually agrees to release him, um, but the mariner, to prevent um, this ever happening again, um, forces a a wooden grate into the mouth of the whale so that it won't swallow any more people. All it can do is swallow little fish. So he got that half right, because that's half of the whales, the baleen whales. So, um, no, I don't think there's any chance. I think all the stories of people surviving um, being inside a whale are made up. Sorry about that. Oh, you've really spoiled my day now, but never mind. <laughs> Helen, thank you very much. Andrew, this one comes from Tomcat, who says... Question to the rocket scientist. See, you're a rocket scientist now. Yeah, that would be neat. If you take a rocket in deep space far from any planet, if you fire the rocket engine, would such a rocket continuously accelerate till it burns out, or would it end up accelerating when its forward speed equals the speed of hot gases, leaving the nozzle of the rocket engine? I think I understand what he's saying. Yeah, I understand completely. And in fact, it would just carry on accelerating forever until it ran out of fuel, because the reason that it's accelerating is not so much to do with uh, measuring particular speeds. It's more just to do with the fact that it's throwing out lots of mass out of its rear end, to to put it nicely. And uh, when it does that, uh, it feels a little push. This is one of Newton's laws. Every force must have an equal and opposite force. It receives that equal and opposite force and as a result, it accelerates. Reminds me of a question we had in The Naked Scientist a while back, which was, how hard would you have to pee to push yourself over? And uh, I, th- I think the answer we worked out was you would have to be able to pee and produce a fountain more than 20 metres high in order to achieve sufficient force that would have any kind of backward propulsion, assuming a, a modestly yeah. weighted man. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> similar that, physics, that right, yeah. different situation. Andrew, thanks very much. Now it's time for Diana O'Carroll, who's getting her lefts and rights mixed up in this week's Question of the Week. This week, I think we've got our wires crossed. Hi, my name is Perm from Austin, Texas in the US. My question is... Why is it that our left brain controls the right side of our body and the right brain controls the left side of the body? What is the advantage? Is this common to most animals as well? Thank you. I love your show. Please keep up the good work. Bye. 
Surely there'd be more space in my brain for useful information if my motor control was on the same side as my puny muscles. My name is Roger Keynes. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. Okay, well, that's a tough question. I mean, it's, it's a why question, and it's an evolutionary question, and answering why questions in biology is very difficult. And in this case, I think we'd have to go back several hundred million years ago to see the very first evolving animals with complicating nervous systems that are getting more and more sophisticated. But vision must have come in, and maybe that particularly started becoming important when mammals developed binocular vision. And the two eyes were looking towards the front of the animal, and so therefore in some parts of what you're looking at, the two retinas, that's the light-sensing parts of each eye, are seeing the same thing, giving you binocular 3D vision. And the point there is that the lens of the eye inverts the image that forms on the retina so that in binocular animals like us, things seen to our left, for example, are sensed by the right half of our left eye and by the left half of our right eye, and that's a product of the physics of the situation. But if each eye then sends all its nerves to just one half of the brain, the picture of the world on one side of the body is then split between the two halves of the brain, and it makes much more sense for this picture to be fused in just one half of the brain by the crossing over of some of the nerves from the two eyes. But more recently, people have been thinking theoretically about how can you wire up a, a clever brain just on first principles. And there, they've decided that probably it's useful to wire things crossed over simply because for reasons we don't need to go into now, that prevents wiring errors or, or, or reduces wiring errors a lot compared with if you wire things up just on the same side of the brain. So wiring might be better off crossed and binocular vision could be the cause of our brain alignments. And some theoretical work has indicated that a brain is actually more likely to wire itself up correctly during development if one half controls the opposite side of the body. On the forum, RD pointed out that the crossover is still present in eyeless animals and insects, whilst Diver John said that it could just be a quirk that all subsequent life forms have adapted to. Next week, how might we adapt our vision to electric toothbrushes? When I brush my teeth with an electric toothbrush, my vision remains normal. However, if I look at a computer screen or digital LED clock, the image is shimmering. Why the difference? That question was from John Wolfe. Why might the vibrations make it tricky to see an LED display? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. So, why can't you see an LED display when you're using your electronic toothbrush? Why would you be looking at an LED display? Perhaps we'll find the answer to that too. Diana will be back with an expert opinion next week. But until then, send your answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or write them on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thanks, Helen. That's it for this week. We're almost out of time. Thank you to our guest, Thomas Peterson, and also to our producers, Sarah Caster-Perry, Mira Senthalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Ben Valsler and Tom Simpkins. Join us next week for the Science of volcanoes. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.